kindergarten and second grade to be dismissed to children's church and any children singing in the missions choir uh, with Mrs. Engel can also be dismissed if you're singing in that choir. But the rest of you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56. Today we're going to be studying Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. Let me just read Isaiah 56, 1 to 8. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and hold fast to my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Let's pray. Lord, your word says that we are like clay pots, that we are earthen vessels. And Lord, when we look at our lives, we, we can feel the, the fragility and the weakness of our lives. Lord, our bodies are weak. One day we're healthy, the next day we're laid low with a, a virus, a bug, a, um, a disease. Lord, our bodies are like that snow outside, slowly melting away. We're so temporal. We truly are dust. We feel it. Lord, we look at our our lives. Our jobs are uh, fleeting. They come and they go. Relationships are incredibly fragile. Look at our families, Lord, and, um, and, and we just pray that you hold them together because they are so fragile. They are like clay pots. Lord, we look at our faith as Christians, and God, I'm so underwhelmed by my Christianity. I look at how quickly my, my highest spiritual zeal atrophies and dissipates. How quickly, Lord, I can go from worshiping you full throttle on Sunday morning to totally oblivious to you Monday morning. Lord Jesus, I, I am a worthless servant and I'm disgusted at how quickly I forget about you and walk in my own ways. Lord, we are a weak and fragile church. There's just a few people gathered here and 
And Lord, you've called us to take the gospel message to the whole world. That's what this whole missions thing is about. And Lord, we look at the whole world, over 6 billion people. What are we really supposed to do here as a little group of people meeting at South Shore Baptist Church? Lord, we're so weak. We're just shocked that your plan is to use us to change the world. So Lord, as we look at ourselves, we see weakness, we see smallness, we see impotence, we see frailty. But we thank you, Jesus, that within these clay pots, your own Holy Spirit resides. That your insurpassably great power and glory live within us. And so, Jesus, we have hope this morning. But it's not hope in ourselves. It's not hope in our church. It's hope in you, Jesus Christ. That you have been crucified, buried, and raised. That you reign at the Father's right hand. That someday you will return to judge the living and the dead. And that you, Almighty Christ, live within us. And so, Lord, we have hope for our bodies that someday they will be raised. And we have hope for our, our families that you, God, can work in our families and our relationships. Lord, we have, work for our, we have hope for our spiritual lives that you, that you are working in us and that even though we are such recalcitrant sinners, you are wooing us and bending us toward righteousness. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for the church and we know that the church will not fail, that your purposes for the church will prevail because Christ is within us. And so Lord, this morning we pray, fan up within us the the power of the Holy Spirit. Fan up within us the desire to follow Christ. Help us to cling more closely to Him because He alone is Savior and Lord. Lord, be with us now as we study Your Word. We pray that You'd work through it in our lives. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Pastor John Piper, some of you read his books, uh, he wrote a book called Future Grace. And in this book, uh, Pastor Piper tells a story of a time when he was uh, counseling with a Christian man uh, who was uh, having an affair. And the guy owned up to the affair, but he just would not break it off. And so Piper's pleading with the guy and arguing with the guy and trying to reason with the guy, you need to break this thing off if you're going to follow Christ. And the guy just you know, wouldn't do it, wouldn't have anything to do with that. So finally, in order to try to persuade him, Piper pulled out the heavy artillery and he uh, took him to the book of Matthew where Jesus warns that unless we fight against sin and especially sexual sin with, with a, a radical intensity that we are in danger of being cast into hell. Do you remember this teaching? Jesus said if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. And he said, better to go to heaven maimed and disfigured than to have your body whole and complete and have it cast into hell forever. And then, based on that text, Piper looks at the guy and he says, look, if you're not willing to fight against this affair that you're in with, with chop off your hand, pluck out your eye kind of intensity, then you're in danger of burning in hell. And uh, the guy was you know, sort of shocked by this statement. He's like, Wow. And, and this supposedly Christian guy says to Piper, he says, are you saying that as a Christian I could lose my salvation? Which is an interesting comment because it sort of presupposes something. It presupposes that the guy actually is a Christian. But how do you know if you're a Christian? 
What are the identifying marks of being a true follower of Jesus Christ? How do you know? What is it about our lives that show us or that prove to us that we really are Jesus' people? I mean, what is it that marks us? Because I don't think you can lose your salvation. I know Piper doesn't believe that either. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. If you've been born again, I mean, how can you be unborn again? If being a Christian is becoming a new creation, how can you become un-new created? I mean, it just, it's a soup. To be a Christian is not just me making a decision. It's a supernatural experience of God's transforming power. And so it can't go back the other way. But, but the question is, all right, so if, if you become a Christian and you're saved, how do you know if you're saved? What are the marks of Christianity? And as we look at Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8, we see that the primary identifying mark of God's people is obedience to Christ, is holy living. That Not that any of us are perfect, not that any of us are, are above sin, not that any of us never fail, but that as Christians there should be a desire to obey Christ, even when we blow it big time, there should be something within us that says, I want to obey, and that strives toward righteousness. We should have righteousness and holiness slowly but surely growing in our lives. And if that's not there, we should need to step back and say, maybe I'm not a Christian. Look at uh, Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 and 2. He says, this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. The marks of God's people, the way you know who God's people are is they're the people who maintain justice, they do what is right, they keep the Sabbath. In other words, they, they gather to worship God. They love God. They keep their hand from doing evil. And if you want to know if you're a Christian or not, you not only have to ask, do I have the right beliefs? Because you do have to believe in Christ as your Savior. But you have to ask, is it transforming and, and changing my life? That's how we know that God's Spirit lives within us. And I think that's important because chapter 56, in a sense, is a balance to chapter 55, if you were here last Sunday. Last Sunday we looked at chapter 55, which was a, a really fun chapter. Uh, it, it was uh, this call to salvation. And last Sunday in chapter 55 we looked at the freeness of salvation. That salvation is not something you earn. It's not something you have to fill out a resume for. That God's salvation is free to anyone who takes it. But this week's chapter balances that truth out. And the two have to be held together. Do you remember chapter 55? Look back at chapter 55 verse 1. If you are here last week you'll remember this. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God's salvation is a free gift. There's nothing we can do to pay for it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We, we don't come to God with sort of a, a bag full of uh, good deeds and try to pay our way into heaven. If you want to be saved, if you want to have your sins forgiven, if you want to know eternal life, the only thing you can do is come and get it from God who's given it to us freely in Jesus Christ. And we talked last uh, Sunday about the fact that this kind of runs counter to how most people think. If you go out in the street and ask the average person, you know, do you believe in God, do you believe in heaven, and they say yes. And then if you ask the follow-up question, well, how do you get there? 
the you know number one above and beyond most common response you're going to get is well you'd be a good person you have to pile up more good deeds than bad deeds and it, you know at the end of the day god looks at your two piles and if your good pile is better than your bad pile then you're in but that's not how it works because you know it works this way god's standard is holiness and if we don't measure up to holiness then we don't get in which pretty much uh bad news for every single one of us uh, because none of us are holy none of us are perfect we don't live up to God's standards none of us can be righteous in God's sight but God is so loving and merciful that he sent his own son Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins so that now anyone anybody and I don't care what you've done with your life anyone who comes to Christ can be saved because salvation is a free gift we don't barter for it with with the money of, of righteousness, of our own deeds. It's a free gift from God. But there's a danger in that doctrine. Can you see what the danger is? Not that the doctrine is dangerous, but you know, there's always a, a, the capacity to misuse a truth. Do you see what the danger of that truth is? The danger of that truth is if you only emphasize that, it could lead people to think that there's no righteousness necessary at all in Christianity. I mean, where is obedience and holy living? I guess I can do whatever I want because, you know, Jesus died for me and so, and who cares? I, like the guy in the, it was, Piper was talking to, well, you know, I don't really have to break off this relationship. I don't have to do any of this. You know, Jesus died for me. I can't lose my salvation. I'm all set. And there's a danger of turning Christianity into kind of a handout program and sort of an easy believism where all you have to do is say you believe in Jesus and it doesn't matter how you live. It's just... You know, believe in Jesus and you're fine. You're all set. Never worry about it again. No, no, no. The way I know that I'm a Christian is that there has to be fruit in my life. The, the evidence of being born again is, is a new kind of existence, morally speaking. I should be growing in holiness. Not that I'm perfect in this life, but, but that I should see progress over time in godliness. I should see a new love for God. I should see a new love for others. And if you don't have that emphasis of chapter 56 on the evidence of salvation and you only have chapter 55, you're in danger of, of deceiving yourself and thinking, well, I must be a Christian because, you know, when I was seven years old at the church camp, I raised my hand to receive Jesus and so I know I'm a Christian. You know, well, how do you know you're a Christian? And it's by the holiness of life that, that progresses over time through the power of the Holy Spirit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this was his whole theme. I don't know if you've ever read any of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's stuff. He, he wrote The Cost of Discipleship. He was uh, a pastor in Germany during the Third Reich. And uh, Bonhoeffer was very concerned that the Christians in Germany, the, you know, the Lutheran church in Germany, had become very superficial, superficial and lackadaisical in its faith. Th that it sort of had this idea that, yeah, salvation is free. It's by grace through faith. It's not by works. And so sort of just handing it out to everyone. Everyone's saved. Everyone's saved. It's okay. And Bonhoeffer says, no, there has to be a holiness of life that is produced. And if there is no discipleship, if there's no cost to Christianity, then you probably didn't get the free gift. <clears throat> and those have to be held together. And so what he talked about was he had this concept called cheap grace. He says that the grace of the church has become cheap grace because it hands it out to everybody. Everyone's fine. Everyone's saved. Everyone's okay without requiring any discipleship on the other side. If you uh, take out your sermon notes for a minute, this little insert in your bulletin, here's a little quote from The Cost of Discipleship. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Jesus is both Savior and Lord. And if I only claim that He saved me, but, but I don't see His Lordship evidence to my life, then I better go back to first base and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Am I really one of His people? Because the identifying marks of God's people is, is growth in holiness over time. We should become a more and more godly people. And so to drive this point home, to drive home that the identifying marks of God's people are, are holiness and righteousness, Isaiah does something in chapter 56, verses 3 through 8, just going back to our text. He, he, he says something radical. In verses 3 through 8, he, he, he goes off the deep end. And people in his day who would have read this would have been like, whoa, whoa, we just took a turn for the strange here. I can't believe you're saying this, Isaiah. But Isaiah says this. Isaiah wants to drive home the point that what marks us as God's people is holiness and not ethnicity or cultural background. It's not by being a descendant of Abraham. Those things are not what mark God's people in the new covenant in Christ that's coming. It's going to be the mark of holiness of life and purity and righteousness. So what he does in verses uh, 3 through 8 is he talks about the fact that in the new covenant, both foreigners and eunuchs are going to be included in the people of God. Look at verse 3. Let no foreigner who has bound himself say to the, Lord, to the Lord, say, The Lord will surely exclude me from His people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Now, you know, we read that and it just kind of goes over our heads because, it, you know, at least for me anyway, I'm not connected to that cultural context. And so I think that the impact of this is totally lost on us. But we have to remember back in, under the Old Covenant in Moses, back in that culture, that God excluded certain people from worship. There were certain people who couldn't come near the altar because God was trying to demonstrate through physical realities the need for spiritual holiness. And so to drive home that we have to be spiritually holy to be in God's presence, he made these sort of physical parameters and physical guidelines to, to sort of be a parable to us to get the point. And two people who were excluded from worship were, first of all, eunuchs, those who'd been, men who'd been castrated, and then second of all, foreigners, people who were non-Israelites. Anyone who was a Gentile who'd come in to hang out with the people of God but did not become a member of the covenant community, was not circumcised, were just sort of a a Gentile, they couldn't worship either. In fact, take out your sermon notes again and look on the, the front page, second quote from the bottom, Deuteronomy 23.1. It's just totally clear. No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of the Lord. If it, it was not bad enough that that happened to you, now you can't come into God's presence and, and worship Him. Uh, or... How about foreigners? Uh, foreigners were excluded from the Passover feast. No foreigner is to eat of it, that is the Passover. Any slave who has been bought may eat of it after you've circumcised him. In other words, after he's joined the covenant community. But a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat of it. 
And so God created these kind of artificial, physical limitations and boundaries to illustrate the spiritual truth that we have to be holy to be in God's presence. Um, think about the temple in Jesus' day. You remember the temple in Jerusalem? It had all these walls around it. There was a temple of God where it symbolized the presence of God, but it had all these partitions. There was the, the most holy place where only one guy could go once a year. Then there was the holy place inside the temple where only certain priests were allowed to go. And then there was the courtyard of the priests where only the priests of Israel could go and, and, and the men of Israel who were ritually pure could go. And then around that was the courtyard of women where only Israelite women could go in and, and men who were consecrated to God. And then around that was the, the courtyard of the Gentiles where only where Gentiles could go, but they couldn't go any closer. So if you were a Gentile and you were coming in to see the living God of Israel, there are all these walls separating you from Him. So we go back to our text, and now Isaiah is saying, no, 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 no. In the New Covenant, all those walls, all those physical barriers, all that stuff is just obliterated. And the only thing that will identify God's people in the future is holiness of life. The way you will know you're a part of the people of God in the future is that you will bear the fruits of righteousness. Jesus said, how do you know what kind of tree it is? Well, by its fruit. It's as we produce fruits of righteousness that we will know God's people. So look at verse 4. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to covenant, in other words, those who bear the fruits, to them I will give, where? Within my temple. In other words, they get to go within the very temple of God. Within my temple and its walls, a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. <clears throat> and notice the, the phrase, an everlasting name. I mean, the, the problem of being a eunuch is you can't have a name. You can't have children, and so they, they can't perpetuate your name. But God says, I'm going to give you an everlasting name even to eunuchs. Because the identifying mark of the people of God is no longer going to be physical characteristics or uh, cultural identity. It's going to be, do you have Christ and is Christ producing holiness in your life? That's how you know. Or verse 6, the same applies to foreigners. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So whereas under the old covenant these people are excluded from worship, in the new covenant they're basically serving as priests. They're going to be that close to God. Because in the new covenant in Christ, what defines a person who belongs to Christ is no longer Jew or Gentile, circumcision, uncircumcision, you know, a whole body, a deformed body. I mean, all that stuff doesn't matter anymore. All that matters is do you have Christ and, and the identifier is holiness of life and righteousness over time. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? It made me think of that story. You know, Zacchaeus, his little song that goes with it about Zacchaeus. I'm not going to sing it. I sang enough last week. Uh, we're... But Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was this short guy, and he was a tax collector. And you want to talk about people who are outside of God's sphere of blessing in Israel. Tax collectors were the worst. I mean, they were worse than foreigners and eunuchs. 
Because, hey, I mean, you can't expect a Gentile to act like anything but a Gentile. But the tax collectors were Jews who had turned traitor on their fellow Jews and gone to work for the Romans. And they were crooked and they extorted people and they stole money. And so, to the Jews, these were even worse than being a Gentile, was to be a turncoat tax collector. And that's what Zacchaeus was. He was this, this little guy who just was sticking and gouging everybody for money. Well, Jesus comes to town. And you remember the story. Zacchaeus can't see him over the crowds and no one's really letting him in because no one likes the guy. So he climbs up in a sycamore tree, right? For the Lord he wanted to see. And Jesus stops, looks up in the sycamore tree and says, Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm going to go to your house today and I want to eat with you. And, he, and everyone's freaking out like, what? You're going to eat with Zacchaeus? Oh, come on. Do you know, he's the tax collector in town. He's the town villain. He's the, he's the scum bucket in our town that we all wish we could kill if he didn't have Roman guards protecting him. They hate this guy. And Jesus says, I'm going to your house. We're going to hang out. We're going to have lunch. And Jesus goes there and they eat together. And something happens. Zacchaeus is, is moved. He's changed. And Zacchaeus stands up and says before the whole town, I am going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And then Zacchaeus says, if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to give you four times over what I cheated you. And you remember what Jesus says. Jesus says, behold, salvation has come to this house today. Now, what did Jesus mean? Did he mean that Zacchaeus bought his way into heaven? Wow, Zacchaeus, you gave half. I mean, anyone who gives half their money, they purchased the ticket. Is that, I mean, No. It's that I know, Zacchaeus, that your heart has been changed, that you have real faith that something is different because you're producing such evident fruit in your life. And so the, the changed life, in this case, giving money away and restoring wrongs financially, is an evidence, it's a fruit of the fact that the tree is rooted in Jesus Christ and that this person really does follow God. So it is by our fruits that we are known as Christians. Do you know if you're a Christian? And how do you know? And the answer is, not only do I need to have the right doctrine, not only do I need to be able to give the Sunday school answer, I believe in Jesus, but I have to have a life that, that produces fruits of righteousness. And if that's not there, then I need to step back and go, you know, let's make sure. Let's make sure that I'm really following Christ. Let's test ourselves as uh, Paul said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Test your calling and election to make it sure, Peter says. Be sure that you are a Christian. Look for the evidence, the gradual evidence of holiness in your life that comes out of love for Jesus Christ. Would anyone you know mistake you for a Christian? Would the people you work with and the kids you go to school with and the people at the gym... Would, would they mistake you for a Christian? Would they think you were a Christian based on your life? Um, my sister was telling me about this TV show. It's one of these reality shows. I haven't seen it. It's called Motor Mouth. And it's, uh, it's a weird show where they... Uh, you know, there's people, some people just like to sing in their cars. They get in their car, they turn on the radio, and they think they're on American Idol. And they're you know, singing away in their cars. What they do is, is they put hidden cameras in these people's cars, and they just film them rocking out and singing and you know, off-key and whatever in their car, singing along, and then they, it's sort of this reality hidden camera TV show. And I was thinking, if they made a hidden camera reality show of your life, and they put hidden cameras all over your life, you didn't know they were there, and they filmed your life, and once a week, 30 million people tuned in to see the reality show of you, 
would those people know they were watching a show of a Christian? What would the title of your reality show be? <laughs> and would Jesus be anywhere near appropriate to put in the title of your reality TV show? <laughs> would they? Again, not that any of us are perfect, certainly not, but is there evidence that would make anyone say, yeah, I think that person really is a Christian? If you tell someone at work, you know, actually, I, I go to church, I'm a Christian, do they say, huh? Or do they say, I thought there was something weird about you. Is there something I could... <laughs> Can they tell? And I think this is important because it is so easy to assume, especially in this part of the country, that we are Christians because we've been raised in kind of a Christian-y, vaguely milieu. A lot of us here uh, went to Sunday school growing up, catechism, CCD, Bible camps, Bible uh, clubs, and we've done all of these things, and our parents are very religious, and we went to a religious school. And so you kind of grow up in it, and, and everyone around you is a Christian, and, and you know how to fit in. You know how to talk the talk. You know how to give the Sunday school answers. You know how to say, well, you know, how, how do you go to heaven? Jesus died on the cross for me. You have to believe in Jesus. You go to heaven by good works? No, only through faith in Jesus. And we can spout out perfect reform doctrine. But am I really a Christian? Is it evidence in my life? I'm thinking of those of you here, you know, some of you guys are students here, high school students, junior high students, and your families are Christians. Man, this is a great gift God has given you, to have a Christian parents and be raised in a church. But at some point, you have to say, this is my faith in Christ. You have to own it yourself, and the evidence will be living it. The evidence of being a Christian is not that my family's Christians. The evidence of being a Christian is holiness in my own life. Now, one of the greatest moments of my life was when my oldest daughter was four years old and uh, she asked Jesus to come into her life and be her, her Savior. And I got to be there for it. It was great. Uh, you know, we've been telling, we told her a little bit about what that was, but we just were not pushing it. We didn't want this to be sort of, I have to do this to fit into the family. Maybe she felt that anyway, but we wanted to sort of protect her from that as much as possible. But, you know, we told her that, you know, Jesus is the Savior and you need Christ. I mean, we told her the gospel. And I remember when she was four, she said, Daddy, you know, one night she said, I want to have Jesus in my heart. And I was like, are you sure? And, you know, I sort of tested her a little. Then so I said, well, let's pray together. So we prayed and uh, she asked Jesus into her heart. Man, it was like, it's one of the best moments of my life. But if you ask me, is your daughter a Christian? And I have to be totally objective, which is very difficult for a father to be. But if I were to be theologically accurate and objective, I guess I would have to say, time will tell. Do I see evidences of faith in her life? Yes. But you can't be sure someone's a Christian because they pray a little prayer. Or walk forward in an altar call. Or raise their hand. Or have some high mountaintop experience. That's one of the reasons I don't do altar calls. Not only because they're historically new in terms of the history of the church, but I think they're spiritually confusing. Because people walk forward an altar call and they assume, therefore, that they're Christians. I mean, they may be, they may not be, but, but it's confusing. Altar calls don't save us. Faith in Christ saves us, which is born out in fruit over time. And so the way I'm going to know if my daughter's a Christian is the same way I'm going to know if I'm a Christian. Thirty years from now, am I still walking with Jesus? And is there holiness in my life? So that's how I pray for my daughter. Lord, let it be real. Let your grace be real in her life. 
And I do see evidences. I do see fruit. And I just pray for more of it, God. Lord, show me Your grace in her life. Because saving faith, although we're saved by faith alone, saving faith is never alone. It always brings fruit. And if you don't see the fruit of faith in your life, brother, you've got to step back and say, let me check this out again. Like that pastor said to that guy, you're in danger of hell and you, and you think you're not because you're surrounded by all these people who know Christ. Know for certain for yourself that you are a believer. George Whitfield, the great uh, evangelist of the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in America in the mid-18th century, I mean, this guy was, he was it. He was the figurehead. Even Wesley and Edwards kind of took notes from this guy. He was the lead guy, Woodfield was. And thousands flocked to his sermons. Thousands gave evidence of faith in Christ. But when people would ask him, how many people have been saved under your ministry? Woodfield would always say, I have no idea, because only time will tell. Whether or not all those people getting excited in my <laughs> sermons are really bearing fruit in their lives over time. And he would say, well, only when we get to heaven will we know. Because only God knows the heart. And, and only God is the one who does that secret work of salvation. <clears throat> so do you have the fruits of, of salvation in your life? Do you have the fruits of holiness? Or are you just kind of doing the camouflage chameleon thing, blending in with the other Christians because you know how to do it? Or is there real salvation in your life? Uh, l- let me just do a quick little diagnostic It's found in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians, chapter 5 in the New Testament. Let's do a quick diagnostic test. Can someone tell me what page it is in the Pew Bible? I forgot to write it down. What's that? 1154. Thank you, anonymous person. Galatians, chapter 5, page 1154 in the Pew Bible. And Paul gives two descriptions. He gives a description of the life dominated by sin and then the life dominated by Christ and His Spirit. Verse 19 of chapter 5. He says, The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if these kinds of things define the overall modality of our lives then we need to ask ourselves, are we really part of the people of God? Not, not if you're a, a Christian who's a recovering alcoholic and you fall off the wagon once. Oh, did I lose my salvation? That's not the point. The point is, is there an overall trend and atmosphere of these things in your life? Or is there an overall trend and atmosphere of what we see in verse 22? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Do I see those things in my lives? And uh, maybe you look at all that and you say, I don't see it. All I see is the first category. Then what, do I, what I say to you is, 
Go back to Isaiah 55. Come to the waters. Come to Christ and be saved. It's time to really become a Christian. Do it right now. But if you're like me and and you are a Christian, I, I read those lists and what I say is, yeah, I see those things, Lord, but not as much as I'd like. That's probably my response. I see the fruit, Lord, but it's not ripe yet. It's still kind of small and developing. And I I want to see more of the fruit in my life. And I believe passages like this spur us on toward greater holiness and striving for God uh, if if you truly are born of the Spirit. It reminds me of a story I read about a minister called, his name was Dr. F.B. Meyer. He was a famous minister of a former generation. And uh, Meyer one day felt really spiritually low. He was sitting at his desk in his study and he, he just felt you know, that, that he was spiritually dry and he wasn't following Christ as well as he should. And, and he suddenly had this, I don't know if it was a vision, but some kind of just strong spiritual experience where he felt like Jesus was standing right there in the room with him. And, and he felt like he heard Jesus say to him, give me the keys to your life. And it was such a, a dramatic experience and it was so powerful that he actually literally pulled his keys out of his pocket because he was just you know, caught by this sense of God speaking to him. And, and, and he, he felt like Jesus said to him, are those all the keys to all the rooms? And uh, Meyer said, yes, except for one small little room that I'd like to keep to myself. To which Jesus said, if I can't have all the keys, I'm not taking any of the keys. And he had this feeling that Jesus was leaving him. And so he, you know, this is how powerful it was. He, he cried out loud, Lord, take all the keys, take all the keys. Because he didn't want any part of his life, not even one little secret compartment, held back from Christ. And I think that's what pastors like this do to me as a Christian. They keep reminding me to give back the keys. Because I keep going and picking Jesus' pocket and taking them back. <laughs> and I need to keep giving them up. I took it back, Jesus, and it, you know, or last week, I keep going back to the world's buffet. I need to stay with Christ, and I need to give Him all of my life. And so for those of you who are Christians, let us give our whole life to Christ, because He alone is worthy to hold the keys. He does hold the keys. Let us surrender ourselves completely to Him. Let's pray. Jesus, take the keys. You are the Lord. We surrender to You. Lord Jesus, make our lives holy. We desire, not just to have the right Sunday school answers, but we desire to see and experience the fruit of salvation in our lives. Lord Jesus, I I just confess I do not hate sin the way I should. And I do not love righteousness. And I do not love You, Jesus, the way I should. Lord God, I need spiritual CPR. I need You to keep pushing on my heart and making it alive through Your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, let us be a church that evangelizes with our lives even before we open our mouths. I pray, Lord, that this church would have a reputation around for being godly, righteous people. The people would know we are Christians because of how we live. Let us be identified as Your people by our love for you and our love for one another. Lord, call us to greater holiness, we pray. And I do pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ or maybe thought they did and now they're really questioning it. Lord, would you give them the Spirit so that they might repent and believe and run to Jesus and find a real vibrant relationship with Him. I pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.
Would you come, praise team? And we're going to close by singing about the holiness of God who makes us holy. Would you stand and let's sing together.